Welcome to the Deep Change Podcast, where we explore the future of human potential through psychology, brain tech, and pushing the boundaries of neuroplasticity. I'm your host, James Garrett, and today we have the honor of having Ariel Garten on the show. Ariel is the founder of Interaxon, makers of Muse, which is the award-winning brain-sensing headband that takes the guesswork out of meditation. Ariel studied neuroscience at the University of Toronto and worked in labs at Toronto's Kremble Neuroscience Center, researching Parkinson's disease and hippocampal neurogenesis. No mere science nerd, Ariel is a fashion designer whose clothing opened Toronto Fashion Week in 03 and has had her work displayed at the Art Gallery of Ontario. Ariel's uncommon combination of science and art is integral to the design of Muse and to Interaxon's unique approach to brain sensing technology. Ariel was also a, a therapist in private practice. She and her team are merging technology, neuroscience, art, and design. Ariel and Muse have been featured in CNN, Forbes, Popular Science, CNET, CNBC, VentureBeat, TechCrunch, Wall Street Journal Tech, and more for creating what Huffington Post calls the beautiful headband that will make you smarter. In addition to her full-time position at Muse, Ariel keynotes around the world on technology, mindfulness, and entrepreneurship. She's pushing the boundaries of what's possible in fusing art and neurotech, and in so doing is making all of us calmer, smarter, and happier. Ariel, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Um, so I'm so excited to have you on the show. I've followed Muse for uh, some time now, and I know a lot of our listeners do as well. I know a lot of them have a Muse, some of them don't. Um, but I want to just start really with kind of how this all began for you. You know, you have a very eclectic kind of interesting background. Um, let's start with your, with how the idea for Muse came about. So um, I've always been fascinated by how the world works, how the brain works, how we perceive the world, how we can shift our perceptions. And that led me to study neuroscience and also led me into the world of art, which is another way to explore what's inside of our mind, what we create with it, and to use the medium of art to shift our perceptions of the world. And for me, I was fascinated initially by the brain and how it was that we could tangibly interact with it. And brain waves were one of the kind of tangible ways that you had this real information coming off of your head. Like brain waves are real. Yeah. But they also seemed to have this like noumenal quality. They had this quality that somehow made them seem, uh, you know, spooky or mystical or greater than the self or mysterious. Hmm. And I wanted to start working with brainwaves um, and actually reached out to a number of people in EEG labs and ultimately began partnering with Dr. Steve Mann. He's one of the inventors of the wearable computer. Um, mm -hmm. He's the guy who in the 90s was walking around with a bulky pair of glasses with cameras on them and hip packs filled with batteries and wires and processors. They didn't I love it. All together himself. I love it. And he had this early brain computer interface system. Yeah. And we were trying to figure out what to do with it. So himself, uh, James Fung, who was his PhD student at the time, and Chris Amini, his master's student, um, we were sitting together trying to figure out, like, how do we use this to create experiences? And the first thing we came up with was concerts where you could make music with your mind. Mm. So 48 people at a time would all get together, wire themselves up with a single EEG lead, and by shifting their brain state, by like super simple transformations, focus or relax, we could then use that shift in brain state to control the musician's output. And hmm. we actually these live concerts. You had uh, jazz musicians on stage playing synthesized instruments. Um, and so as the audience shifted their brain state, that would send a signal back to their synthesizers to shift their programming. So, you know, shift their pitch, shift their volume, which the audience would then hear again. And you had this amazing, like, regenerative interactive wow. space between the musicians and the audience's brains. Right. That's amazing. And the experience, I love that you used the word experience, that that was kind of what you guys were after, was this kind of unique 
you know, there's so many people, of course, talking about the experience economy and that people are really hungry for these types of enriched experiences. Um, why, why ex like, was that a shift that you made uh, with, with him that you were working with? Uh, or how did experience become kind of the focal point of what you guys were trying to design for? Um, so, you know, 15 or 18 later, years later, through my mindfulness lens, yeah. I would tell you that experience is the way that we literally experience the world. It's the way that we transform. It's through experience that our, our senses, our brains are tuned to the, the experiences that create and shift the self. Yeah. Um, at that time, I think we just wanted to make things that were really cool and push mm. the bounds of technology and see what they could do. And for me, the maybe for some others in the group, it was the tech that was the exciting part. Um, Steve is an artist. So he always, you know, he always wants to create art while, while he's creating this crazy tech. Mm. Um, and for me, the fascination was uh, both the creation of art because art creates an experience that allows you to shift your perception or shift yourself. You know, mm. think about when you kind of go and see a Picasso exhibit and you look at every single Picasso and then you walk out and all of a sudden you see people's faces in different ways. Mm. <laughs> you see what Picasso saw. You start, you start to get that shift in your own perception. Mm -hmm. um, and then for me, the other fascination was the brain. Like I just wanted to be able to, to, to see it, to touch it, to know how it works, to know how it creates our perception of reality, how it creates our entire world. Mm -hmm. And this was like the first tangible way I ever got to literally in my, you know, in my experience, like literally touch the mind, like connect with the mind mm -hmm. and then be able to have this two way dialogue with it. It was unbelievable. Fascinating, fascinating. Touch the mind. I that, that it's so funny you say that because I feel like there's a there's like a growing um, you know there's this this, this phrase Sharon Bagley and Jeffrey Schwartz use of, of self directed neuroplasticity that that you have this that we have this this ability to kind of design or create or become the artists neural artists in a way or neural architects. Um, yeah, and I think at that point, yeah. so I then went on to be a psychotherapist. So, you know, obviously this idea of neural architecture was interesting to me. How can we, um, how can we use tools to shift their perception? Now, you know, at this point in my life, I have so many more techniques um, and so much more understanding of ways that we can apply what we know about the brain and human behavior to be even better neural sculptors or neural artists. Um, though no matter how much you try to shift yourself, you, it's, it's always hard. You, you never exactly know where you're going. You never really know how to get it right. Um, <laughs> it, is, it is always just an art, not a science. Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, do, you, do you feel like it's, it's, you don't really know how, how to get it right in a sense that it's sort of this ongoing experiment or you're experimenting as you're doing it? Or does it feel like you don't know if you're getting it right or how to get it right because we, we still don't have that deeper, um, I guess, granular visual or ability to look inside of our brains. For example, we don't have mobile fMRI, which would be pretty impressive, right? I think the, my question is more like, what is right? You know, mm -hmm. uh, you can go through, you can be, be a beginning meditator and have the sensation of like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm getting somewhere, I'm calming my mind, I'm reacting more effectively, you know, I'm, I'm having, Am I supposed to be having less experience or more experience? Like mm -hmm. the world, is the world going to get more difficult for me or less difficult for me? Am I going to be less sensitive or more sensitive? And it feels like there's always this tension between, between if you're trying to, you know, shift and craft yourself between the person that you think you're supposed to be when you are the thing mm -hmm. and the lessons that you learn along the way, which are kind of telling you like actually that thing that you thought that was important really is not that important. That thing that you want to be, yeah, don't even worry about that. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah. This is funny because we were mentioning this before we started, but, but I'm in the process of this, this kind of a self journey myself. I'm, I'm going on this year long brain hacking journey, trying to rewire my own brain in 2019. And I've had a number of those moments, right? Where it's like, it's like stuff that I didn't expect to be as important has become really important and stuff that I thought would be more important has sort of receded in the background. Like what? Like, you know, you know, the, the, the biggest surprise comes sort of a month or two into it was really the uh, uh, emotional side of what I'm doing, 
you know, and it's specific around emotional healing. And so I started getting into this um, project and, and, and again, for a lot of us, as I would say, even maybe most of us, you know, we all, we all have these sort of emotional um, difficulties that we've been through. Stress, life is, you know, it's the trauma of everyday life, as Mark Epstein says, right? Uh, and so there's this sense in which uh, those, those emotional memories live with us, where, they, they, where, where they're part of us. And so to, to kind of get into those, stare those in the face, work through those, process through those, through therapy or other, other types of processes, um, as well as reflection and writing and, and, and you know, James Pennebaker has done a lot on, on the therapeutic effects of writing and um, these types of things, uh, you know, m- many different tools. But, but again, I, it's almost like when you open that box, you kind of don't know what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. You, you expect that you're going to, you know, do X, Y, and Z. And then once you open it, you just got to know you, it's, it is kind of like art. You don't actually know in some sense what you're going to create when you have that blank canvas. Yeah. And part of it is just accepting that fear of the unknown and just sitting with that, sitting with that and going into it. You know, most of us feel emotions and then we're afraid to feel emotions. So we shut them off. Um, and so then we, you know, do all these complicated things to avoid feeling our emotions. And then one day we're like, okay, we're going to do mindfulness and it's going to calm us down and then we'll never have to feel our emotions again. Mm. And then you discover that mindfulness is actually about feeling your emotions. You're like, oh, fuck, <laughs> taking me over. What am I supposed to do with this? This is an emotion. I didn't like this. I did not sign up for this. <laughs> and then you go into the yoga, okay. I'm just, you know, I'll just sit with my emotions for the next few years. It'll be amazing. I will be resilient and capable and able to get through any emotion. Yeah. And as you get deeper and deeper and deeper, you just can cover more and more and your emotions get bigger and bigger. And you have, you know, uh, not less life to deal with, you know, not, not a sensation of life being more organized, but possibly more life to deal with and hopefully more capacity to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but potentially an even greater level of complexity than the project that you walked into, which was probably to reduce complexity. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah, right. Uh, So you bring up this really interesting point, which is I think people get into meditation and they, they look at it as I've never quite thought of it that that a lot of people are getting into it to kind of get, get rid of those hard emotions or negative emotions, or at least tamp them down a little bit. So I don't have to deal with them. Um, And you're saying in, in many ways, meditation kind of brings those to the surface. Meditation, uh, might bring them to the surface, but uh, what I was really getting at was that the practice of meditation is the practice of being able to sit with and accept those emotions. Mm. And to be able, so one of the practices that I've been doing lately is to sit with fear. Um, And so there were little things in my life that I was afraid of, and I noticed that they were causing like odd behaviors and holding me back. It's like, I'm kind of afraid of that. So I started this practice of just sitting with the fear. And even like, small things. I, I tend to, I don't have much social anxiety, but I um, like, let's just take the example of like talking to somebody who you are afraid of speaking to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you feel like a little uncomfortable about talking to them. So you don't go away and it's, you don't do it and you walk away and it's fine. And you experience like this much fear, like a little, a half second of in, in discomfort. Right. My new practice is whenever I feel that half second of discomfort is to throw myself into that discomfort to just stand there and fully feel the fear, which often magnifies it. I'm just like, you know, it's like you're standing on the edge of something and rather than just dampening your fear and jumping into the water and it's fine, I just stand there and fucking feel it. Mm. And I have the fear coursing through my body and I let it do it and it courses through my stomach and through my heart and my chest and my head. And I just stand there bravely in that fear. Um, And this is something I would never in the past have imagined myself doing. And when you do that, it frees you to what's on the other side. And so it's like, okay, so I started doing that with fear. Now let's do it with disappointment. Now let's do it with jealousy. Let's just fucking feel these things. Mm. And in doing so completely change your relationship to it. It's not something we're trying to avoid. It's not something we're trying to push away. It is just something that you can be in. Um, And it, it can be a roller coaster. And, you know, part of the promise of meditation is to like get off the emotional roller coaster. Um, but there is also the opportunity with these techniques to, to dive as deep as you can into it and feel the depth of living that you have been avoiding. 
to ride actually ride the roller coaster to and, ride it and observe yourself as you're riding it right to kind of it's going to be the observer and the participant and know and, that you can survive it and you're fine you're going to be fine yeah so and sometimes I, it feels like you're going to die i've had fear moments <laughs> not really like i believe you no things, i get it but the sensation yeah. of fear is just like you're going to die you shouldn't do this this is terrible for you and i'm like logically i know it's a totally fine thing to do but everything in my body is saying you're like if you do that you will die and I'm just going to fucking stand there and feel yeah. the feeling of my body screaming at me that you're going to die, knowing that the thing on the other side is safe and that it's just fear. Fascinating. So you'll be interested to know right now, September and October, these two months. So every two months in my Deep Change project, I'm working on a different trait or, or you know, mm-hmm. fit, like you're saying, right? And in September and October, are actually fear. Um, and so I have to tell you this thing I did literally three days ago. Uh, I was in, it was in Los Angeles. Um, and, um, at one of the, at a, at a, at a, at a well-known kind of market, it's like a, it's sort of a flea market, but lots of people, tons of traffic, whatever. And one of the fears I have is getting in trouble, you know, and again, this is for my childhood and, you totally. know, and getting caught and, you know, doing something I shouldn't be doing and getting reprimanded, these types of things. So I'm like, screw it. I, I'm, I'm going to, cause I'm like, I'm like, I'm constantly, so one of my goals, one of my habits is doing something that scares me every day. Mm-hmm. And, and feeling that fear much in the way you're saying, just yep. feeling it and letting it be right without resisting or trying to run away from it. So I decided I, 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 I would meditate in the middle of this crazy crowded walkway. So I did, I sat down, I meditated, uh, no, knowing full well that some security guard, some store shop owner, somebody's going to come bust this thing up. Right. Uh, but I did it. I actually put the muse headband on. <laughs> Awesome. Um, so, so. Uh, it's gonna signify. I'm meditating. No one's just meditating. It's like I'm signifying. Well, that I'm meditating. well it, 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 it. You know, there's part, but, but it's also like people are. It, it, it dis, it's disruptive to people's mm-hmm. what they're expecting, right? It's disruptive to the expectation, and so part of that, I do, I do think, makes a difference, right? Uh, so I did, and um, again, I had a twenty. I was planning on a twenty-minute meditation. Sat down. I had a friend there just in case, like some, te- I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking like what could go, my brain's going, what could go wrong, right? Some teenage punk kids are like, you know, come up and start kicking, you know, you know whatever. I can't see because my eyes are closed. So you feel very vulnerable in a, in a public space. Um, and uh, nobody did. Of course, everybody's just being cordial, but very curious. In fact, one guy gets down by me. I didn't know this until after I saw the footage because my eyes were closed. Takes a selfie with him and me, you know. Um, so people are just curious, right? And then, um, and then sure enough, about seven and a half minutes in, some security guard comes up, tells my friend, hey, this is private property, you can't do that. You know, comes up to me, hey, you know, sorry, man. You know, but, but again, I, I allowed myself to walk into that feeling, which is, you know, again, getting fear of getting in trouble or getting caught, um, feeling it, knowing that it was going to be okay. I mean, what is he going to do? He's just going to ask me to leave, right? He's not going to like, you know, it's just no, it's no big deal. But I've got to, over time, repattern my brain or, or rewire my brain in such a way to, to, again, feel safe walking into those situations where you don't quite know where that boundary is. Also, that's amazing. Good for you. Thank you. Uh, also resonates. So I have a three-year-old who I, you know, have constant internal dialogue about like, okay, what am I doing when I'm disciplining him? And, you know, uh, I was in some ways very against disciplining because uh, as a therapist, I've seen all of the fucked up things that people build from their childhood yeah. <laughs> and all of the structures of stuff that you're not supposed to do and approval that you want and, you know, ways that you think love has to be given or not given. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a very difficult pro- project to craft an individual who won't have the effects of your parenting. Um, you know, such mm-hmm. a benign little thing. You're, you're telling a little, little boy constantly, like, don't do that or you're going to get in trouble. But it turns out that there's really very few other ways to craft behavior except through love and consequences. And you need a balance of both. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, hopefully we'll create enough methodologies that allow people in adulthood to undo the structures that we unwittingly create in childhood. <laughs> oh my gosh, so true, right? Well, well, and also that the, the evolution of science, even, even parenting science, so I'm a big fan of Daniel Siegel mm-hmm. um, and uh, his, uh, you know, his work, especially with, with, with the way kids develop, you know, and so one of the books I've, I've 
been really diving back into recently is is um is no drama discipline mm-hmm. uh whole brain child of course was the kind of him and tina pain breast is one of the first but 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 uh whole no drama discipline again I'm, I'm thinking to myself did my parents have a clue about any of these sort of you know it's like even taking taking one concept which is connect then redirect, right? Connect emotionally in the middle of the tantrum. Say it's this situation where kids are out of control. They've flipped their lid. They're, you know, they're, as you would say, their downstairs brain is sort of taken over. Um, that it's in that moment that you, they don't need any advice. They don't need any discipline. They don't need any, any, any sort of direction. They don't need to be redirected. What they need is soothing. Yeah. They just need to be soothed, loved, comforted. You know, just, just even just to sit with them. You know, they talk about a time in instead of a time out, right? Just to sit with them, um, to let their bodies and brains just whoo, calm down. That's what they need first. So I'm like, and, and then again, once they're, they're back online, their kind of thinker or thinking brain is back online, then, then at that point, maybe there's some opportunity to walk into a conversation about um, an appropriate behavior or why it's not okay to hit or, or whatever, but they just can't learn when they're in that reactive state. But I'm thinking to myself, did my parents have any of that scientific body of knowledge that I'm as a parent and I have a six year old and I, and we're expecting our second. So Congratulations. I, I, thank you. Um, so I, I'm in the same boat. I'm always thinking I have a, I have a bit of an unfair advantage as a parent as com- maybe compared to my parents in that way. So I think about that too. And then I also think about how the techniques, so I'm, I'm, I'm 100% in, you know, all of the parenting and all of my parenting is about connection and support and reinforcement. Um, I did a great interview with Dan Signal uh, for Untangle My Podcast on Father's Day talking about his parenting techniques and it's beautiful. Mm. Um, um, but I also can't help but wonder what the collateral damage of the techniques that we're currently using are. We, we don't know what it's going to be yet. And it's totally yeah, okay. All true. parents create mm. collateral damage through whatever it is that they do. Mm. And so someday we're going to look back and say, you know, like, Oh, and all that connection, we were, you know, not building resilience or whatever it is. Mm. And that's totally okay. You have to let go of any guilt associated with it. Just know that any of our actions invariably have consequences. And, yeah. and, and I take full responsibility at this moment for not knowing what those are going to be, despite trying to do the best we can. And knowing that it's enough, like you're obviously, you know, we all love our kids so much. And so like those efforts you're making, even if they're not perfect or not, you know, even the word perfect is the wrong word, but, 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 but these definition will not be perfect. These, in, these intentional, you, in some ways, you, everybody's just doing their best. Totally. Right. So I love that. It's a very generous way to think of that. Like in the future, even if we screwed up and we totally did these Which things. Which we will so, have, I'm sorry to tell but, you. <laughs> yeah, we will have, right? Yeah, I think that's reassuring. It eases the pressure, the kind of parenting pressure that I think a lot of us feel. I'm curious to know, you know, 20 years from now, what the new research will tell us about the new best way to parent and what we will be kicking ourselves that we didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. And talking about kids, I want to bring it back to Muse. Um, My daughter uh, has started, you know, she did her first Muse meditation a, a while back. And, uh, she finds the gamification side of it, the birds chirping, just, she loves it, right? It's like, it's like this. So we've, we've done meditation with Headspace and, you know, she, she knows, in fact, she just calls him Andy. <laughs> Andy. <Pettigrew. laughs> oh, I'm listening to Andy again, you know? Um, um, so she's very, very versed in this stuff, but, but Muse is kind of a new thing to her. And um, it was interesting. She took it very seriously, right? We, we did it after school. I was picking up from her after school program and we sat there. We were just wandering around the halls of her school. We sat down on a little table and I happened to have the head done with me. So I put it on her and, and she knows I've been doing it and she's been wanting to try it. So she tried it and she was like, somehow it feels more real, more, I, I think it's, again, it's the interactivity of it, the feedback that make it feel like she's getting, she can tell how she's doing. So I want to bridge that into what is the Muse headband? How does it work? And what is this feedback that I'm actually referring to? Sure. Um, So Muse is a brain sensing headband that helps you meditate. It's a clinical grade EEG, the same thing you have in doctor's hospitals. 
um, you know, researchers, labs, and hospitals, and it has sensors on the forehead and behind the ears, and it tracks your brain while you meditate. And it gives you real-time feedback to know when you're in a state of focused attention and when your mind is wandered. So we all know this meditation thing is good for us, but for lots of people, meditation is hard to do. You sit down and your brain bounces all over the place and you're like, what am I supposed to be doing? What, what's going on in my mind? Hmm. And so Muse gives you both real-time feedback during your meditation, as well as data, graphs, charts, motivational architecture after the fact to help you build your practice if you haven't meditated before or enhance your practice and give you new insights if you're a long-term meditator. Hmm. It's like a mirror for your meditation. I find this fascinating, you know, holding up a mirror for your brain or your meditation, giving brains have a hard time seeing themselves. Yes. <laughs> you know, I, I, in fact, I was, I was reading this one, you know, book about how everything that happens in your brain is dark. You know, you, you forget that your body is dark inside. You can't, there's no, you know, so, so, so it's almost like, and I know that that doesn't have as much to do with how the brain functions, but it's an interesting idea that like it's dark in there, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's similar that your brain doesn't have a way to sense how it, whether or not it's achieving what it intends to do or your own goals. It's very hard to have a sense of yourself. And, you know, a lot of the practice of meditation is giving you the time to take an inward lens. Um, so mm. in meditation, you are having a sense of your mind finally by observing your thought, by being the consciousness explorer, by trying to actually watch the, con the process of cogitation and then mm. be able to shift it, change it, make choices around it. Whereas most of us just go through the life, our life thinking and not thinking about our thinking. And so with Muse, it's one of the first times that people actually have a tangible, you know, third party uh, yeah. helping to shine a light on the inside to make that intangible process tangible. For those who are watching my video, I actually have it right here. I just want to show it. So that's it, right? It actually just goes, slides right on your forehead, just like so. Um, and goes behind the ears. By the way, is it too high on me or is that about right? Uh, it's a little too high. You want to slide down the sensors on the back, but yeah. it will still work like that. There you go. Very handsome. And you have no, a Muse too. I, have, I do have a Muse too. I'm glad you noticed. Um, but, but so you're just meditating. Again, for those who are, this is, this is the first time they've seen the Muse headband, uh, you, you meditate. As you're meditating, you're wearing this, um, and then you're listening to audio, the feedback that you're hearing in terms of how your brain is doing, whether it's in a focused or, or mindful state or, or a mind-wandering or distracted state. Uh, is, is through auditory feedback. So, um, you know, on, on the kind of classic, the, the Muse One meditations, um, uh, you know, it gets, your brain gets thundercloud or there gets kind of bad weather or thunderstorms um, when you're in the kind of distracted or mind-wandering state. Um, and you hear birds chirping when you're in the kind of strike zone, when you're in this kind of calm focused, present, and, and you're thinking about your breath or you're with your breath. Um, so that it's really interesting. Um, it, I find, you know, on a, on a thinking about your thinking level, um, I find two things. One is that I enjoy just knowing how I'm, how I'm doing because brain meditation is kind of a black box. We know it's good for us. We know it has all these benefits, but how you're actually doing and if you're improving is hard to see. Um, and the other thing it makes me do is want to get better uh, or improve. It, it has this sense of thinking of Teresa and Mabel's research on the progress principle, um, this idea that a sense of progress fuels motivation to keep at that hard habit. Yeah, so meditation is really hard to do. It's an incredibly easy practice that's a hard practice. And part of what's hard about it is getting yourself onto the mat each and every day. Mm. And so with Muse, we have a motivational architecture that you can just, you can see your progress. You can see how you've done session over session for some people, you know, for thousands of sessions. Mm. See how that graph has shifted and changed and taken you in the direction that you have chosen to go. And that um, ability to see your own progress is highly motivating and just gets you to sit again and again and again because meditation is amazing for you mm. but only if you do it regularly 
And mm-hmm. so, yeah, we crafted this to help you just build the, build the habit of building your practice. Do you, are you guys, do you guys get that kind of feedback from your, from your um, users that they, that they find it motivating specifically to do the meditation? Do you guys get that kind of, I, yes. I know it should, it should work in that way, but you guys are getting that kind of feedback. It does. It does. So there's the, you know, at first there's the extrinsic motivation that, you yeah. know, the points and the graphs and I have this many birds or I got an award. Um, and soon that ends extrinsic motivation starts to melt away and then the intrinsic med- uh, motivation of the rewards of meditation itself come into the board. It's like, oh, I feel calmer. Oh, you know, I see that I've made this progress. Oh, this feels different. I now should be meditating. I want to be meditating because I feel this progress. And so Muse becomes kind of an anchor that helps you through that um, and gets you to the point where the extrinsic motive, intrinsic motivation is so compelling that you are doing your practice each and every day. And at that point, it moves from being a piece of motivation to a tool of exploration and a tool of, you know, plain inspiration. Mm. That's fascinating. You know, habits are these tricky things because our brain doesn't do anything it doesn't have to do because brains are energy conservers. They don't like to do difficult things. Um, but getting over the hump of, um, you know, the couple months it takes to actually form a habit is try- it's tough. That's where everybody gets stuck in that kind of dead zone. And so to use extrinsic motivators thinking, and I know you guys have done this internally in the team, but bridging that into an intrinsic motivation that that's all part of the design or the psychological design and architecture of the experience of Muse, I think is really fascinating. And so the bird, so there's, there's this other sort of tangent or, you know, there's this other um, tension between meditation being this, goalless process and us having to give you a bunch of reward to hack your own brain system just to get you to meditate more often so you can get into the practice. And so one of the ways that we undermine that is with the birds. So when you're very, very quiet and you stand calm for five seconds, a little bird starts to tweet. And the first time you meditate with news, you're like, okay, there's birds, whatever. Um, Then as soon as you find out that the bird was effectively a reward Mm. for staying in that place of focused calm, you get very excited that you got a reward. Mm. And then the next time you hear a bird, you're like, yeah, I did it. I'm awesome. That was a bird. And then the bird flew away. We actually used to even have little flapping sounds like, sorry, your reward just flew away because you got too excited about it. So it Mm. very very quickly teaches you sort of intuitively this process of equanimity being equally as uninvested in your failures as in your rewards. If you get too frustrated because it's really stormy, the storm's just gonna keep raging. You have to learn to let go of your judgment about how you're doing in order to be able to quote unquote do it effectively. So when you let go of your fear of the storm or the cogitation you have around the storm, the storm dissipates. And equally when you get let go of your excitement and you know and, and pride and you know, all the, all the self-congratulatory talk around yeah. getting the reward, uh, then you're able to sit in that state and stay with it. And you're saying those types of states like excitement, you're talking about how to measure that with the EEG, that so you're seeing be, that. Mm. To be clear, what all we're measuring is focused attention versus mind wandering. Mm. Um, so when I referred to excitement, I meant all of the, you know, the cogitations that come or can come around that. Mm. But but to be clear, you're you're if you do get excited about the bird that you were just at, your brain naturally will go to a state that is not as no longer. Yeah, calm focused attention. Yes. A calm focused attention. So it's actually an inherent property of how the EEG is measuring your brain that it's an it's like a natural consequence of of not staying in an you know having that equanimity. Yes, to, right. to a certain degree. I mean, it's not a perfect science. No, I get Everybody's it. Yeah. brain is different, but we do have a, a pretty good um, barometer between focused attention and mind wandering. Um, so there's lots of states of focused attention that you can be in and still be in the state that we detect. And, you know, they include various states of calm abiding, um, also states of joy. There's, there's like, you know, states of expansiveness. Mm. Um, Um, But we're really looking for, you know, the focused attention versus the mind wandering. Let's talk about Muse 2 and how it's a little bit different than Muse 1. A lot of it's about the kind of extra options or features, um, heart heart meditation, these types of things. Can you explain a little bit more what's different between the two? Sure. So in the original Muse, we give you the real-time feedback on the brain, which is what we've been talking about. 
In Muse 2, we've added additional sensors to give you real-time feedback on the heart, the breath, and the body. Um, so meditation is so much about the mind, um, but it is certainly more than the mind. We are, you know, mind-body systems that are, that, are, that are inherently intertwined with one another. And uh, what you do in one system, a mind system, affects the body system, and what you do in body affects your mind. So with Muse 2, we've built a range of experiences to help you start to explore and integrate these systems. So in the heart experience, we have a PPG sensor um, that detects your heart rate. It's actually on the forehead. And what we do is we translate the beating of your heart into the beating of a drum. So you're like literally hearing your heart beat like a drum sound. Mm -hmm. And it tunes your interoception. So interoception is the ability to sensitively detect what goes on inside your body. And there's some research suggesting that those who have greater interoception have less stress because you're actually able to sense when your body is stressed and then that becomes the cue to bring in uh, shifts in habits and behaviors to help you decrease that stress. So interoception is, is a very meaningful skill to build and one that is deeply built within mindfulness. So in the muse experience, the heart experience, when your heartbeat is increasing, you hear sounds that let you know that your heart rate is heart rate is speeding up and when it's decreasing you hear sounds so that you know that it's slowing down so you get to actually begin to learn your heart's rhythm and learn what things you can use to shift and affect your heart's rhythm um, and to help you understand its own waves so, it's almost like putting i almost think of it like putting a microphone to your heart yeah, yeah. and it's cool. really beautiful it's like it's powerful it's like to hear amplifying it yeah yeah, yeah. Um, my little son um well i'll He'll, when he puts his head on my chest, he knows he's hearing my heartbeat. And so you know, he'll talk about my heartbeat. He's like, I'm hearing your heartbeat. He says, can you hear mine? And I'll put my head on his chest and hear his, and we'll talk about it. And like, he's very, you know, he's very interested in, I'm totally on a tangent here, but as a little boy, he's very interested in things being fast. And is he the fastest? And uh, little children have faster heartbeats than adults. Mm. Um, so, <laughs> so he's always like, is mine faster? Yeah. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, as you get older, you'll, you're not going to want that. But yeah, yes, for now, you, you win for now. Yeah. <laughs> probably what we slowing down is not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, um, and actually, when you breathe in, your heart rate increases. When you breathe out, your heart rate decreases. Mm -hmm. And that's why breathing patterns with extended exhales help you decrease your heart rate and therefore relax your body. So in our breath exercise, um, there's just one breath exercise in now, but there's more coming. We're always um, adding new exercises and experiences every few weeks. So in the breathing exercise, we teach you a breath pattern that's in breath for four, out for six, to help you extend your exhale and uh, stay in that sense of um, slowed down heart rate for a longer period of time. And when you do that, it triggers your autonomic nervous system to further relax your body. Yeah. So we start to kind of learn the different systems in our, of our body and the levers that we can pull, the tools that we can use to shift it as we need to, you know, elevate your heart rate when you're feeling lax and you actually want more energy in your body and to decrease your heart rate and learn to relax your physiology when that's the better option for you. You know, I love this idea of people becoming um, really good managers or, or, or skilled at managing their nervous systems which is how I'm hearing what you're saying. Um, you, know, you know, when, when, uh, when, when you think about, you know, there's this really interesting study. Uh, I think it's the University of Barcelona, their business school um, around leadership and, and what they were finding is the best leaders were the ones who, who knew how to manage their nervous systems the best, meaning, and essentially to calm mm -hmm. them down is what we really mean, right? So to use these types of breathing out twice as long or, or at least longer than you breathe in, activating the vagus nerve, calming the, activating the parasympathetic calming system, and using things like heart rate variability, right? Which is what you're talking about as, as one of these really interesting indicators um, for progress, how you're doing. To, to, again, this isn't about perfection. This isn't about, uh, but it's about, being able to track um, incremental growth. It's about growth, right? Um, so I find, that, I find that really fascinating. One of the things that I've been really excited about in my own deep change project this last year is I've been measuring my heart rate variability. This is my aura, aura ring. And, uh, am I, and there's like this clear, steady line of my heart rate variability, you know, over the months, just up, 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 which means I'm, I'm more stress resilient. 
Yeah, so to just build that up for anybody who's listening, so heart rate variability is the process that I was describing. So I was describing, it's called the sinusoidal arrhythmia, um, how your heart rate moves with your breath. And when you breathe in, it's faster. When you breathe out, it's slower. The difference between the in-breath and the out-breath, the, the, basically the height of that peak, that is your heart rate variability. So people who are stressed and poor health, depressed and older, have lower heart rate variability. Their in-breath and their out-breath don't lead to as big a change. Um, those people who are more stress-resilient, high athletes, very happy, young, um, show, are shown to have much greater heart rate variability. And heart rate variability is something that you can train with practices like this. So the 4-6 breath that I described is a breath pattern that's intended to actually train and increase in your heart rate variability and hopefully confer uh, resistance and resilience as a, as a result. I love it. I love it. I love, I love the, op, the, the sort of ability to look inside, to peer into your own biology, your own mind and body in ways that we just never have. And I think tech is obviously, you know, the biggest reason that the tech and, and coupled with the science. Um, along those lines, where do you think neurotech is going? Um, so we are just at the beginning, like we are so at the very infancy of this. Um, when we started with Muse, so I started in the lab in 2003, and that was, you know, you could only do these experiments in a lab with Steve and Chris. Yeah. Um, when we formed as Interaxon, it was 2007. Um, it was just beginning to come out of the lab, and we're like, how can we take this to market? We launched in 2014. And you know, by 2014, there was a clinical grade EEG that could help you meditate in Best Buy. Wow. Like, yeah. That's kind of mind blowing that there's mm -hmm. that level of you know, consumer accessibility to tools that had previously been inaccessible. Like an EEG machine was $100,000. Right. You know, cheap one was $34,000. And now you can buy a, I don't use ones like 150 bucks. You can buy a $150 EEG that helps you meditate. But this is so just the tip of the iceberg. Um, you know, in terms of the way we're thinking that we want to build out this technology in terms of the thousands of people that now have access to tools. You know, there are hundred developers, hundreds of developers that have built stuff on top of Muse that have built experiences coupled with VR um, mm. experiences, you know, for other, for other modalities like pain. Um, we're doing, there's over 200, I think there's about 194 published papers with Muse and wow. over 200 different research institutions and thousands of neuroscientists that use Muse. Um, so like there's even just on our one platform and we're just, you know, one platform, we happen to be one of the first platforms, but just one. Mm -hmm. but even on our platform, you're seeing the multiplication effect of having the first technology out there that people can, can easily explore with. And then we're going to see, you know, we're seeing new technologies go through that commercialization process, just like we were able to commercialize EEG. Um, so, you know, focused ultra, first there's uh, transcranial direct current stimulation, mm -hmm. um, which still has its problems, but has interesting opportunity. There's transcranial magnetic stimulation that was such a like rare, rare, rare thing is now in common use. Focused ultrasound is not, hasn't yet reached the consumer world, but there are lots of people who are working on it in the laboratory and working on the commercialization phase. Um, its ability to, you know, upregulate and downregulate parts of the brain. Um, and, you know, light technologies, uh, photoreactive technologies, um, uh, red and blue and ultraviolet EEGs, uh, sorry, LEDs, and their ability to affect different parts of the brain. So those are just like off the top of my head, a few right. of the technologies that people are exploring in multiple domains with, you know, and that multiple labs and developers and hackers and startups are, are bringing. So, you know, we're going to see an explosion over the next 20 years. Hmm. How much of it will be useful has yet, you know, jury's out. Hmm. How, much of it, how much of it will be meaningful, jury, jury's out, but something in there, something in there is going to going to move the needle without question yeah i keep i keep kind of saying that this this that within the next you know five ten you know 20 years that that neurotech is going to change the way we live and work and what's possible and it's going to augment human potential and it's going to become this big thing um but one of the things that i think you're you're bringing up that I find just endlessly fascinating is breaking down these kind of institutional barriers between academia and industry, right? Um, 
you know, I, I worked in, in research for a number of years um, uh, back on the East Coast, and um, I, I found, you know, so, so in so many ways, like my 20s, I was just trained to think like a scientist. So, so I have lots of friends who are, are professors. That's what the road I was on. Um, and um, my, th there's a lot of skepticism from the academic side toward industry, right? Or toward, um, you know, what happens in these realms. So it's really quite refreshing to hear the feedback loop where, in, you know, academic institutions or other researchers are now using the technologies uh, in order to make these types of studies, let's say, accessible or, or at least feasible, you know, to, to, um, to advance science in that kind of basic science sense. Yeah, it's been amazing. And it, it, it took a little bit. At first, there was the skepticism, like, is this a piece of garbage? Are we measuring muscle? Or is this real EEG? And then the first mm -hmm. few papers came out demonstrating that, yes, this is real EEG. Yes, you can get ERPs. Like, yes, we have meaningful data. And from there, it just grew. Um, and scientists were really excited to have a tool that also also bridges between you know their lab and the real world, and now lets you do an EEG study with 200 people in situ in their lives. Or mm. you know, there's a paper from Baycrest Hospital looking at the brain activity of 500 people over an eight-hour period at a festival. <laughs> um. That was a research paper from an established brain hospital. Um, and so we can now really start to bridge those gaps and do science in new ways that open up you know, novel ways of seeing the brain that you just couldn't see when you had one $100,000 EEG system, like, just locked in a lab. Well, and even the ecological validity, which just means, like, you're doing studies or research out in the real world, right, as opposed to bringing people into the lab. I mean, that, from, you know, in psychology, that's always been the biggest critique, you know, sociologists or someone who have the field of psychology is, you know, that's great when you have all these tightly controlled conditions in a, in a beautiful laboratory. But the problem is, what does this look like in people's real lives? And I don't know if what you're doing speaks specifically to that. Obviously, psychologists have their answers, but um, this, is a, this is a new future in the way that we research. Yeah, it's a piece of it. It's definitely a piece of it, you know. Um, science tends to be subject to the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, where the uh, you know, machine that you're using to determine the thing or the conditions that you're using to determine it uh, shift your outcome. So hopefully by being able to do in-situ research, you know, writ large, we can reduce some of that. I mean, the downside is you're getting only four channels of EEG, um, although with our research ones, you can add additional channels. Um, it's a lower channel count, but when you can look at EEG from somebody over the course of a day, over the course of, you know, weeks or months, um, you know, the trade-off starts to tip in the other direction when you're able to have that depth of understanding of an individual over time. Makes sense, yeah. Well, Ariel, this is super fascinating. Yeah, I'm I'm so intrigued by all the possibilities where it's going with VR. Uh, you know, uh, so uh, you know, I, I use a halo. So I just had Daniel Chow on my show last week's with with transcranial drug stimulation. So I I I think this is. I'm so glad. Um, thoughtful people like you are leading the conversation because I think as a community of of kind of first. Um, as you said, Muse is one of the first to be out on the market. I, th I think it's, I think this, this sort of psychoeducational piece of this, of educating folks what neurotech is, what brain tech is, how it helps, um, you know, is critical. Because I think that, that that conversation can get hijacked collectively through media and other, other ways, in ways that are going to, could potentially set it back in, in unfortunate ways. And so I, I think this proactive stance you're taking to be a voice out there promoting the positive um, upsides of what we're trying to build is, is really important. I think it's critical to create the culture for the industry. Since the industry is just starting, we have the opportunity to sort of, you know, set out our charter. You know, what, what is it that we're here for? What are we trying to do? And to, you know, in, encourage and elevate the act actors who are acting ethically. Um, and casting those that are not and, and call them out. You know, technology should be in service of humanity. We're, most of us listening are, are geeks. <laughs> so that's why we're listening to what, you know, that's what <laughs> you know, we're fascinated by stuff and that stuff could be human stuff or tech stuff. But I think it's critically important that the tech stuff doesn't overshine the human stuff and that we recognize that the reason that we're creating this technology is in service of humanity. 
And the moment we start to overstep our bounds and create something that is not in service to humanity, we should probably stop immediately and put our efforts elsewhere. Mm. Wise words. We can do, you know, there's, there's, yeah. there's so many possibilities. Why not put your effort into those that are going to elevate not just yourself, but everyone around you. Well, and I also think that people can't see the future that doesn't exist until it hits, hits a little bit. And so, you know, even the, what we built with the technologies of, you know, say 2019 or over the last decade, you know, many of those are, are built to distract us, quite frankly, and, and, and hijack our attention in, in, in interesting ways, at least the big ones, the big platforms. Um, it's a detention economy. It's a dopamine economy. Um, so, so I think brain tech and neurotech kind of re, it's almost like a course correction <laughs> in a sense where building, and again, I'm, think, I'm speaking right now to designers and, and, and engineers and, and those who are building the technologies, but the ability to um, create a, a new future where the technology is, as you just said, in service of humanity. I want, I want, you know, the net, the next platform to help me to be a better dad, to spend more time with my kids, not be surfing Facebook while my kids are playing on the, on the, on the ground. Right. I don't mean to call out Facebook necessarily, but, but, but something that's pulling my attention away from what I actually value. No, 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 no. I want the technology to align me with my values, not to distract me from them. And uh, you made an important distinction, which is your values not the values that are imposed upon you by the technology or the platform or mm. the zeitgeist. I mean, our values are inherently shaped by the zeitgeist. It's hard to escape it. Sure. Um, but hopefully technologies like meditation give you the opportunity to actually stop and reflect what is meaningful to you and then make the choices for you, uh, not for the world that is imposed upon you. Love it. Well, Ariel, thank you again so much for your, for your wisdom, for your perspective, for everything you've built with Muse. We're all a little better because of it and, um, and keep, keep, uh, keep fighting the good fight out there and we're, we're cheering you on. Thank you. And it's, it's not just me. It's uh, Chris, Chris Amini. When he, you know, he's the one who really builds these incredible experiences. He's the technical and spiritual genius behind all of it. Trevor Coleman, our other co-founder, who actually built the original Muse experiences. Um, so it's our team of 60 odd people here. There's, there's, there's a lot of people that go into creation of this. You might see my face, but I'm, I'm just one representative of very many. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Big team put, pulls these things off. Um, well, thank you. Thank you again for your time. And uh, we'll, we'll talk again soon. And thank you for sharing your interesting project insights. Very cool. I want to track it. Thank you. Appreciate it.